Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a changing Europe and today to mark the fifth anniversary of the referendum we've got a special episode with some of my favourite people. We've got Jill Rutter, Catherine Barnard and Jonathan Portes, all of the UK in a changing Europe and we're here to reflect a little bit on the last five years. So welcome all of you, hope you're doing well. Hi there. Just to kick us off with a sort of broad general question what about the last five years has surprised you the most what has really taken you aback i think um, what surprised me most is that we're still here we've still the you know the four of us are still uh, sitting around talking about brexit working about brexit and we're still only at the beginning if you told me on june 23rd 2016 or especially on june 22nd that in five years brexit would still be my main research area and moreover that we'd only have a couple of months worth of data on what Brexit was actually doing to the UK economy, uh, I would have been very surprised. This has turned out to be, you know, we always said Brexit was not an event, but a process. Well, it's turned out to be a much, much longer drawn out um, and more painful in every possible sense process than I would have ever predicted. I'm going to jump in before Catherine because uh, Catherine will tell me this just shows how useless anyone in government is. But um, <laughs> but if I could just channel my uh, former civil servant role, I think what struck me is I don't think I had any sort of grasp at just how complicated the process of getting out of the EU would be. And I know that's been a recurrent theme in lots of the interviews we've done for our witness archive that the civil service didn't really grasp just how much 45 years of EU membership at the time of the referendum had sort of, you know, infiltrated the entire space in which we make policy. So I don't think I expected that. I think we got a very early hint the day after the referendum when we saw that initial uh, rabbits in the headlight press conference from Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Gisela Stewart, just how surprised the leaders of Vote Leave were uh, that they'd won. And I think the absence and the problems in actually defining what Brexit would and should mean have also really characterised. That's, of course, the reason why we're still so uh, at the starting at the foothills of the process rather than you know, scaling the peaks of really, really being able to see a very clear future ahead of us. So I think that that became clear quite rapidly. But the difficulties in resolving it and the difficulties our political process had coming to grips with such an existential issue, I think is quite interesting. My big reflection is that we are far too casual about letting prime ministers use referendums for short-term political convenience. I think I would add to that. I think, dare I say, lawyers absolutely knew just how much EU law had infiltrated the domestic legal system and therefore the process of unpicking it was going to be absolutely gargantuan. I think what was really striking was that just how little government and civil service actually knew how the country operated. And I think one of the things that was striking was that when the civil service got over its initial paralysis as a result of the referendum, and they started doing an extraordinary piece of work mapping how the UK economy actually worked. They learned a great deal, and we have learned a great deal about supply chains, business, all aspects of operation. But for me, the biggest surprise is to see how constitutional law has come alive 
it's gone from pretty dusty textbook, but to watch all of that come alive through the convulsions of the fights between Parliament and the executive and the courts in that crucial autumn in 2019 was really quite remarkable. And it also made us begin to understand for the first time whether we actually have a system based on, for example, the separation of powers, or actually is our system really one which is so executive driven. I suppose on this, to what extent was this difficulty, this complexity down to the specific factor of Northern Ireland? That's to say, you know, if we if we were another member state that didn't have Northern Ireland, would this have been a hell of a lot quicker and easier? No, I would just say borders are sensitive wherever you are. And of course, borders have been contested for centuries, whether it's the Franco-German border, any of these borders are difficult. And so the moment you start reintroducing some sort of hard border, it raises difficulties. Of course, with Northern Ireland, the issue is on steroids because, of course, of the, the the recent history of the Troubles. And the very fact is that most people did not understand the significance of the Good Friday Agreement. It's worth bearing in mind the Good Friday Agreement is symbolic as well as a text. And by that, I mean, people say what the Good Friday Agreement says is that there should be no hard border in Northern Ireland. In fact, it doesn't actually say that in terms, but that's what people understand it to mean. And so how to deliver that? And there have been some absolute fanciful suggestions about using the magic of technology without by people who just don't understand just how sensitive even having a simple camera on a border, um, how provocative that is to communities in Northern Ireland. And one of the low points in the debate was definitely when Boris Johnson compared it to the congestion charge between going through Camden or between Camden and Islington, which is clearly sort of dimensions away from how problematic uh, the border is. So one of the things that strikes me listening to you is just how easily you talk about all this. I mean, that's one of the things that has changed over the last five years is actually, you know, five years ago, we've been asked to do a podcast with lots of ums and ers. And now five years on, we, we, just, we can talk about it endlessly. But I mean, on, just sticking to the macro theme, what do you think is the most profound change that has come about to the United Kingdom because of Brexit? It, it has crystallised a trend that was already evident in our politics, where towards a more values-based, if you like, or attitudinal set of cleavages around identity, around age and education in particular, and to some extent around geography, things that were happening anyway. Um, But Brexit has proved to be a sort of symbolic theme around which those cleavages have crystallized. And that in turn has um, led to some of the the constitutional tensions that, that, that Catherine alluded to, where we had a system which always, I think, in, in sort of formal terms, did have an incredible degree of centralization, um, no written constitution in the normal sense, an incredible uh, centralization of executive power and parliamentary and, and sovereignty, that, but, one, but which under previously, because of the unwritten rules of the game, um, was not exercised in that way. And, and we're seeing that now, that sort of naked, exercise of the prerogative of the executive when it has a majority in parliament um, in a way which didn't used to occur. And I think Brexit has sort of precipitated that, even though in in many ways it's not directly a cause or consequence of Brexit. I watched Jonathan yesterday on his computer drawing a graph, uh, which was a very interesting process. And he was drawing a graph about the impact of Brexit on the economy. 
And can you just talk us through? I thought it was really well, interesting. We had, we had a quick chat about well, it yesterday. I mean, what I was trying to say was, look, we, we've had two or three months of rather rough and incomplete trade data showing this significant fall in trade with the EU. Um, and the question is how to interpret that. And what I was trying to say is that, look, in terms of the impacts on trade, we've actually got probably at least four different effects going on. First of all, we have stockpiling uh, in the anticipation of Brexit, which actually pushed up trade just before Brexit. Then we have and pushed down trade immediately after Brexit. Then we have what you might call teething problems as companies got used to new systems and forms and so on. Then we have the impact of um, new non-tariff barriers, mostly forms and processes. And then we have the longer term impacts as companies um, readjust their supply chains and processes and investments. And what you might therefore expect to see, if you think about it, is not this sort of either this steady downtrend or this immediate fall to a new level, but rather something which more looks more like this, a sort of undulating, decaying sine wave, as Anna put it, where trade first goes up, then falls sharply, then recovers a bit, and then gradually declines again. These, these effects overlap. Um, we don't know the exact size of any of them. So I, one has to be quite careful. We have seen this sharp fall in trade. My assessment is that so far it is consistent with the model-based estimates, which say that the long-term impact on trade is going to be a fall in our trade with the EU of perhaps 20 or 25%. And I think the data we've seen so far certainly doesn't disprove that. There's nothing to make us throw out those models, but it's still too far too early to tell because we're still perhaps only on this particular bit of the wave. But I think one of the really interesting things about Brexit is the sort of, you know, laying to rest the it's the economy stupid line that we all remember from Bill Clinton, because even despite the warnings that David Cameron and George Osborne thought were the absolute slam dunk winners in the referendum on the economy, the fact that you know 99% of economists agree that putting up trade barriers with your biggest trading partner is probably injurious to economic performance. A lot of people seem to say, well, actually, yeah, it's a price worth paying. And I think that's quite a difficult thing for politicians to reorientate themselves about. I mean, whether that is true, if you actually got very specific factory closures directly related to people saying, I am relocating to Slovakia because the UK's access to the single market is so contingent and unreliable. I don't no, but I think that's been a really interesting sort of wake up call. I mean, the other one is, uh, you know, I was in number 10 under John Major when we saw the initial rise of effective Euroscepticism in Parliament through the opposition to the Maastricht Treaty. The three bastards in the cabinet, the, uh, you know, 20 or so who ended up losing the whip in that sort of very odd faction. And that was deemed to be a really sort of odd niche just a few obsessives, you can name them, who were interested in that. And the fact that actually, in many ways, they morphed into being the majority of public opinion in the Brexit referendum, I think was really, really quite an interesting example of how uh, our politics were divorced from a lot of opinions out there, even if you could say a lot of the people who voted in the referendum didn't necessarily vote on Brexit, they voted to give David Cameron a kicking and things like that, all the stuff that Ken Clark always warned were a reason for thinking referendums were a stupid way of deciding any difficult public policy issue. I think um, the one of the most striking things is the territorial divides across the United Kingdom. Just take 
uh, East Anglia, for example, which is not an area that most people think about when we talk about the territorial constitution. But you've got the Cambridge city overwhelmingly remain, you know, up 80, 90 percent remain vote. And then uh, in concentric circles moving out from that, you've got areas like Wisbeach, which voted overwhelmingly to leave. And then you've got the coastal areas, uh, areas like Great Yarmouth, where we're doing quite a lot of work to see just the levels of deprivation that you find there and also overwhelmingly um, vote to leave. Now, the question then is, how do the people in Great Yarmouth get their voice heard? And you could say that Great Yarmouth has experienced a real double whammy. It's already one of the most deprived parts of the UK. But three ports have gone not to Great Yarmouth, but they've gone down the coast to um, Harwich and Felixstowe. And so businesses that might have been tempted to vote by whatever government offerings were available for Great Yarmouth say, well, look, three ports are such a good thing, we'll move there too. So then the question is, how do the people in Great Yarmouth get their voice heard? And there is a real risk, I think, with all the focus on levelling up in the north and the northern and the red wall seats there, and all the concern about what might happen to Scotland, that other places in the United Kingdom, um, which have been felt enormously let down by governments over the decades, still feel that they have again been let down, especially the fishermen who uh, work out of those ports. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about what, what Jill was saying about the early 90s. If back then you'd speculated about leaving the European Union, you'd have thought that doing so would be part of a very right-wing economic project that involved, you know, dramatic deregulation, slashing and burning of all the rules that Brussels imposed on us. And one of the ironies about Brexit, of course, is we're not seeing any of those policy impacts that you might have expected from the people who initially pushed this project. It's a very, very different sort of public policy that's that's come out. They're still waiting for Ian Duncan Smith's report, though, remember? That's the Tigger, Tigger report is, was due at the end of April and as of uh, early June still hasn't appeared. And the government was going to put its toe in the water, wasn't it, with the working time regulations? Remember, it was going to be one of the big targets post-Brexit that we would deregulate. And then Kwasi Kwarteng um, became Secretary of State at Bayes and said, actually, no way, Jose, we're going to keep the working time regulations much unloved as they are. But I do think this is one of the big pluses of Brexit, I have to say, is that We've lost our convenience scapegoat, if you like. You know, we've always had this sort of frustration. If only we were in control of these, we could make decisions and we would do things differently slash better. Whether it's on agriculture policy, where DEFRA is trying to do something very different, uh, we'll be interested to see how they pursue it, where we're being forced to front up for the consequences of trade deals, you know, like the debate we've had recently about a potential trade deal with Australia, Things like that. And I do think that uh, that, that actually hopefully will um, mean that we can actually say, are we actually a country that likes high degrees of worker protection? Or would we like prefer to be more like the US with a sort of more you know, easy hire and fire culture, things like that? And I do think being forced to do that because we never really used to do that because we always knew in Europe, even though all the evidence suggests the UK was really quite an influential player in Europe, that no British minister ever got anywhere by saying that they had collaborated in the European compromise. They always had to do it in this sort of very binary UK victory or UK you know, sent down to, to defeat at the hands of French protectionists or whatever. And I do think that that could be a useful cold shower on British politics and make us understand actually you know, what the choices are and why we're making them. Most interestingly, of course, in immigration, where actually, which of course was not only 
the central policy issue in the referendum, um, but also the area where actually divergent, you know, where leaving Brexit really does mean immediate, genuine, massive, radical policy change, perhaps unlike any other policy area where things are going to be much slower and more gradual. So we do have an entirely new immigration system. And for the probably the first time in British history, it's a sort of system that has actually been designed rather than one that's just sort of emerged from history. You know, most of our immigration history has emerged, uh, uh, policy has historically been driven either by um, empire, by commonwealth, by various refugee flows, um, and then in the last 40 years by free movement as a member of the EU. Now, for the first time, really, we actually designed our own policy. And it's going to be quite interesting to see whether this one that we, des- you know, how that will evolve, to what extent it will be driven by political pressures or by economics. And again, I, you know, I think I have been surprised here. If you'd asked me a few years ago, certainly once to, when Theresa May was prime minister, I would have said that um, we would have a considerably more restrictionist migration policy as a result of Brexit. With May gone, that is far from clear that is any longer the case. Uh, we have a policy which is, as in respect of non-EU migrants, is probably more liberal than any EU country now does, with the possible exception of Sweden. Um, and that matters less since fewer people go to Sweden. So, so we are at least having a go at a sort of liberal globalist approach to uh, um, to economic migration. It'll be very interesting to see both what the political and economic implications of that are. Catherine? Although we do have, as Jonathan said, uh, at, in the headlines, a, a liberal uh, global immigration regime, of course, the reality is that we also have probably the world's most expensive uh, immigration regime because the visa costs are eye And I don't think any other country in the world uses the visa fees to help fund the entire border operation of the United Kingdom. And so what you're seeing is that although the rules themselves are relatively liberal, not of course to be confused with free movement in any way, because this is not the case, but the actual operation of the rules and the cost for the individual for having a three-year or five-year visa, plus the process for going through to get that visa, plus the bureaucracy, on the employer side is vast. And and I think this is where policy and reality absolutely crash together because for those firms, small businesses, local cafes, local hotels who are struggling to recruit staff, what they have never had to do before is to have certificates of sponsorship and be engaged with the home office. And the implications of that are really serious to them, big, big costs. So even if the government decides to accommodate the Martin and um, Weatherspoons to uh, lower the income, the minimum income that you need to earn, there's going to be a huge shock for either him, Weatherspoons, who are going to have to pay the visa costs for the individuals who come, or for the individuals, and the individuals just will not be able to afford to pay. Well, it's interesting to see whether that sustains the idea that basically immigration has become a profit centre for the Home Office. Whether And I remember putting this to Amber Rudd when she left being... Home Secretary had come up a lot at the Labour Party conference, a lot of questions about the costs of immigration. Conservative Party conference didn't come up at all. Uh, but I was on a panel, chairing a panel with Amber Rudd, and I asked her, do you think you should look again at visa fees? Is that feasible when you there's no free movement? So basically all migration is paid for migration, if you like. And she said, no, 
how would we fund the how would we fund the system then the answer is you fund it through public spending but uh, anyway i don't know whether the home office is quite up for that and there are quite a lot of demands on the treasury at the moment so i'm sure that would be a very unwelcome bid from them but they have actually always been on the side of more liberal migration so it might be an interesting dilemma for the treasury there Thinking back on the last five years, what is the moment that sticks in your mind? One moment from your experience over the last five years, what would you think? Apart from coming to work with me, Jill. <laughs> for, for me, it was certainly the, the moment at just after midnight when the Sunderland vote came in. If you remember, a number of us were speaking at an all-night conference that the LSE had organised. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that there were quite a lot of uh, academics who were Remainers. Of course, we were non-partisan, so we were talking mutually, but I think there was a profound sense of shock. And then all of us, I think, were doing various things on College Green in, in the morning. And the extraordinary reaction there was, I think, something that was, was stick with me for the rest of my day. My academic reputation already shot, even more shot when I featured on Mock the Week of look at that mad academic sitting next to Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, it was probably not my greatest moment. Jill, you got a standout moment? I think the scale of the first May defeat actually was really, I remember sort of hanging around and just seeing those numbers that a government has gone down to a defeat in Parliament of by over 200. For all of those, those of us who had always been brought up on the fact that the legislature, frankly, doesn't really matter. It's a bit of a rubber stamp. Government almost invariably gets its way. <laughs> the extent of the May government's problems in Parliament, I think that sort of crystallise and the oh right this is going to be really 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 impossible impossible so I think my abiding memory thought of the whole period is just the levels of non-understanding between of the UK of the EU and of the EU of the UK have been quite startling for people who have been partners for uh, for quite that long. What about you Jonathan then what about oh, Anna you're not going to get away with this we're going to turn the question back on you. For me it was I think reading the council conclusions or the agreement between the UK and the council in December 2017 which included those paragraphs 45 and 46 or whatever it was about Northern Ireland and reading it and thinking we signed up to this this simply isn't going to work she can't do it she doesn't know what she's doing there is no strategy there is no coherent strategy for Brexit how can this possibly end in anything other than chaos and, and confusion. I did an interview that night because I think nobody else was around <laughs> on the Friday evening. I remember coming up and saying, basically, it's going to be really difficult when the fudge hits the fan. <laughs> and I think we've still got, we're still living with that shower of fudge. And Alan, what about you? Lots of memories. It's like a lot of my sort of most uh, acute memories are around the 2017 election. I mean, several things. Mm -hmm. Firstly, Jeff Evans and I literally finished our book on Brexit and British politics the morning of the day when she called the election. So my first feeling was one of utter horror that she would do this thing. My second recollection from that was being in a meeting with a bunch of Labour MPs when the division bell rang for the vote on the election. And I remember one of the MPs sort of sidling past me, muttering, Turkey's voting for sodding Christmas. We won't be here after this. And just the, the sense amongst Labour MPs that they were going to lose. And the final thing related to that election that I remember very vividly was I was at the New Statesman election party when the uh, first results came in and the first results suggesting it was going to be a hung parliament. Now this is a very Labour environment but it was a very anti-Corbyn environment and the strangled sort of half cheer, half groan that emanated from that room 
when the results of the exit poll came out. So there were a bunch of people who were A, cheering because the Tories had lost and then stopping themselves and groaning because they realised it meant they were stuck with Corbyn for the foreseeable future was absolutely weird. That election was a real eye-opener. I'd just like to end by saying it has been an utter privilege to work with all of you through these last few years. I've learned so much from you and it's been fun. And I look Even some law. Well, apart from the law. <laughs> I thanks ever so much and uh, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you.